mycobacteria. If you look at mycobacteria in general, they can be divided into three big categories. The first big one, um, of course, is the MTB complex, and that includes M. tuberculosis sensu strictu, M. bovis, which causes bovine TB, um, M. bovis BCG, which is the, the attenuated BCG vaccine, and then some other uh, members of the MTB complex. And then the second big uh, category is M. leprae, which causes uh, leprosy. And then the third large category are the NTM, the non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Because they're environmental, they're also called environmental mycobacteria or atypical mycobacteria. In the past, uh, they've also been called uh, MOT, uh, mycobacteria other than TB. So you might see that uh, terminology as well. Um, this is definitely not a list to, uh, to memorize or anything like that, but um, this is just to illustrate that now there are over 180 species of uh, NTM. Um, I finished my fellowship about 10 years ago and when I was giving this talk back then I used to say over 150 species, but every year uh, the number keeps increasing as uh, the diagnostic methods improve. Um, NTM are ubiquitous in the environment. They're both in natural and in untreated, they're both in untreated and treated water. They, they're in drinking water. Um, they're found in soil. Human-to-human um, -human transmission is uh, essentially uh, Unexistent, non-existent, um, although there are cases of um, transmission uh, of M. kansasii uh, among two members of a household, and um, there is some evidence that's suggestive that that may have been a human-to-human transmission, but in general, um, uh, NTM are not transmitted from uh, person to person, and often when we see uh, um, outbreaks or something, it's not from person to person transmission, it's from a, a common source of the outbreak. So NTM infections are diagnosed more now than they've been in the past. A lot of this has to do with us uh, recognizing it more than in the past. We also have improved microbiologic methods for diagnosis, but there also does appear to be a, a, a true incidence that is increasing um, of infection. So this is uh, a chart here that's illustrating the mycobacterial isolates that were isolated in a, in a regional lab in Ontario. And this is really the case across any state lab in the US where you can see all of the uh, TB isolates have been going down over time, but there's been an increase in the NTM isolates. And again, this is illustrative of uh, pretty much any regional uh, mycobacterial lab. We're seeing more NTMs and less of uh, TB. So regarding a true increase in incidence, uh, just like there's a purified protein derivative against uh, TB, um, which actually isn't that good of a test for TB. There's also, there are also skin tests that can be made against the NTMs. And one of these is M intracellulari, which is a member of the MAC complex. Um, there, can be a, there, is, there is a skin test to M intracellulari. And this is looking at the increase in skin test reactivity to M intracellulari over time. So in both the US born and in the foreign born, you see that over a 30 year period, there was a significant increase in uh, skin test reactivity, and it appears to have been more so in the foreign-born uh, over that period of time as compared to the U.S.-born, and there's um, some speculation that perhaps this is because of a change in uh, immigration patterns. Perhaps now we have more immigrants from resource-limited settings. They, uh, they come from TB endemic countries. They might have uh, post-TB bronchiectasis, and so they're, they're colonized with uh, with MAC or other uh, species, and so they have this uh, skin test reactivity to intracellulari. But in either case, the incidence does appear to be uh, increasing. So what about um, tuberculin skin tests in NTM? 
So NTM, um, they're the cause of the majority of the positive PPD reactions in the US. And again, PPD is not a specific test for TB. It interacts with, uh, with all uh, mycobacteria. And it's been described before as pretty much um, a test for mycobacterial poop. Um, so there was a study looking at um, how often uh, positive PPD tests are due to uh, mycobacterium avium uh, reaction. So they took healthcare workers in uh, 2001 and they did dual skin testing with uh, PPD and with uh, also a skin test against mycobacterium avium, M. avium sensitin. So the bottom line of the story was that the most likely um, cause of PPDs when they were in sort of this intermediate range between five to nine millimeters were due to uh, M. avium. But as the PPD diameter increased, um, then they, um, a greater proportion were due to TB. So the, the bottom line is that the, the larger one's PPD reaction, the more likely it is to be due to uh, TB. But if it's in that more intermediate range, um, there's a great chance that it's due to uh, NTM, especially due to, uh, to MAC. So that's looking at the PPD, but now, of course, we have the interferon gamma release assays, things like the quantiferon and, and the LSPOT test. So those do not interact with MAC. However, there are certain NTMs that do cause uh, false positive IGRA results, and those are M. kansasii, M. marinum, and uh, M. shulgi. So who's at risk for, uh, for NTM disease? First, let's talk about disseminated NTM disease. So when someone's infected with, uh, with an NTM, um, the macrophage ingests the, uh, the acid fast bacilli, and you can hear, see, hear, see it here in this uh, cartoon. Um, and then the macrophage will secrete interleukin-12 and interleukin-18, and it will recruit uh, T cells. Then the T cells will, uh, will uh, secrete interleukin-2, and then they'll become activated. And then after that, they'll secrete interferon gamma, and interferon gamma will bind to the interferon gamma receptor on uh, the macrophage. Sorry about that. And then um, after the interferon gamma receptor is activated, um, TNF-alpha will be released, and then it'll result in release of uh, things like reactive oxygen species, and then the macrophage will actually be able to kill the uh, acid-fast bacillus. Or this is true for actually any intracellular uh, organism. So if there's any defect in this loop between the macrophage and the uh, T cell, this interleukin-12, interleukin-18, interferon gamma loop, um, those individuals are at risk for uh, disseminated NTM disease. So, for example, individuals with AIDS, they have uh, T cell deficiencies. They're at risk for uh, disseminated uh, NTM uh, disease. So what about pulmonary, isolated pulmonary disease? Well, really, you can divide those individuals into those with pre-existing anatomic lung disease and those without pre-existing anatomic lung disease. And the ones with pre-existing anatomic lung disease are those uh, with COPD, um, who have extensive emphysematous disease. Um, I mentioned earlier previous TB, so having post-TB uh, bronchiectasis, uh, bronchiectasis in general, or cystic fibrosis. So uh, silicosis, this is common in places like in uh, South Africa, where there's a lot of mining in Southern Africa. Patients who've undergone uh, radiation and they have radiation fibrosis. And then of course, there's a, a big tie between um, GERD and aspiration and uh, development of bronchiectasis. So, so those individuals are at risk for uh, pre-existing, they have pre-existing anatomic lung disease. And then uh, those with uh, primary ciliary uh, dyskinesia. Those, those are the ones with pre-existing anatomic lung disease. Um, looking at COPD and, uh, and NTM, 
Um, it's been shown that COPD patients who do have NTM isolated from their sputum, they tend to have more exacerbations and they have a more rapid FEV1 decline than those who do not have uh, NTM infections. Um, looking at inhaled corticosteroids, um, there is some data that uh, inhaled corticosteroids are associated with NTM infection, um, but that data is actually mixed. And these uh, studies actually with inhaled corticosteroids, those are all generally um, case control studies. So there's a lot of bias in those studies. Um, so in general, when someone with uh, COPD has NTM isolated from their sputum, it can be very challenging to determine whether that's colonization or actual disease and trying to sort out um, whether uh, their symptoms are worse because of the NTM or because of the, uh, the steroids. And perhaps, especially if uh, it ends up being a mixed infection, several different NTM species as well as bacterial species, it could be a marker of disease severity rather than uh, NTM disease itself. But either way, that could be uh, really challenging to decide whether it's colonization and, or disease and whether to treat the NTM or not. So looking at azithromycin, there's a theoretical risk that uh, that can cause uh, an increased uh, rate of resistant NTM in individuals who are on chronic azithromycin, especially those who have uh, COPD and they're on azithromycin to prevent um, uh, their, uh, them from having several exacerbations. There's no data at this time as to whether chronic azithromycin uh, is associated with an increased risk for isolating NTM from uh, sputum cultures or whether even um, that's, that increases the risk for uh, resistant NTM, or, although I guess there is a theoretical risk, but right now there isn't any data to, so, to support that. So we've talked about those with pre-existing anatomic lung disease and their susceptibility to pulmonary NTM. Um, there are also those who do not have uh, pre-existing lung disease, and you can really uh, compare and contrast these two categories. Those with uh, pre-existing anatomic lung disease they tend to be men and uh, they tend to have an extensive uh, cigarette smoking history. Those without pre-existing lung disease tends to be a female predominance. Um, the men uh, tend to be older, the women tend to be younger. Um, those with pre-existing anatomic lung disease, they have uh, worse PFTs than those with uh, no pre-existing lung disease. Um, the CT chest findings in those with pre-existing anatomic lung disease tends to be um, emphysematous or fibrocavitary disease, but those with uh, no pre-existing lung disease, they tend to have nodular infiltrates or uh, cylindrical bronchiectasis. And those without pre-existing lung disease, um, it's also been labeled the Lady Windermere uh, syndrome. And this is based on a play by Oscar Wilde where he was, uh, it's called Lady Windermere's Fan, and it was a satire of Victorian attitudes. And there was a, a character in the play, her name was Lady Windermere. And um, there was a theory initially that these uh, women without pre-existing lung disease who develop uh, pulmonary NTM, it was because of cough uh, suppression. So um, they, they, they labeled it as Lady Windermere because perhaps they were um, suppressing their cough in order to avoid uh, doing something that was maybe uh, not proper or not showing uh, etiquette. Either way, um, this uh, relationship between cough suppression and NTM disease, that's been uh, debunked since that time and that relation, that uh, 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 calling NTM disease in these women, Lady Windermere syndrome, um, that's really not being used much anymore. Okay, so if we look at um, these women who do not have pre-existing lung disease who develop pulmonary NTM as compared to the uh, 
population of general women throughout the country. Um, this was from census data about uh, over 10 years ago. So the women who do have uh, NTM and do not have pre-existing lung disease are on the left. And then um, uh, the general population of women is on the right. So these women tend to have, um, they tend to be taller and thinner, but they also have other abnormalities like uh, scoliosis, pectus excavatum, mitral valve prolapse and uh, CFTR mutations. So those mutations, none of those mutations end up being the deletion F508 mutation for cystic fibrosis. These are other uh, polymorphisms. And there's speculation that these are all sort of connective tissue abnormalities and perhaps these connective tissue abnormalities, they lead to uh, bronchiectasis um, and then they end up getting these, uh, these NTM infections. Um, so this is the classic CT you would see in um, a woman who does not have pre-existing lung disease and then ends up um, growing MAC in her lungs. And you can see that um, this person has nodular bronchiectasis in the right middle lobe and then the lingula, and then they also have uh, sort of tree and bud opacities everywhere. So I saw that there were a couple of questions in the chat box. Let me uh, open up. I've sort of been neglecting that. Oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't re related to this. Okay, so that's, um, that was the CT. Um, so I have a question here that um, I was asked to, uh, to insert board-related questions. The last time I did this, and I, I'm not sure if this is still relevant or not, but I'll go ahead and ask this. So we have a 79-year-old man. He has a history of uh, former, he has a history of former tobacco use. He has mild asthma, successfully controlled with uh, low-dose fluticasone inhaler. He presents with a mild cough. Physical exam findings were within normal limits. Spirometry confirmed mild airflow obstruction unchanged from previous tests. Chest x-ray demonstrated a new abnormality for which he was treated with amoxicillin without improvement. And I guess here you can see the right upper lobe uh, abnormalities. A subsequent CT scan showed extensive uh, right lung changes. Um, here are the CT scans. Again, you see the right-sided uh, changes. He has a cavity in the right, and then um, significant emphysematous changes on the left. So the question is, bronchoscopy yielded moderate acid-fast bacilli results of amplified mycobacterium tuberculosis tests, so that's a PCR test, were negative. At this point, what should you do? Should you initiate um, isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, which would treat uh, TB, azithromycin, rifampin, and ethambutol to treat MAC, piptazo, which would treat uh, pseudomonas, anaerobes, and other bacteria, or azithromycin and ceftriaxone that would cover um, community-acquired pneumonia. I guess I'll open this up to, to people. And I guess we don't we don't get to have any um, definitive identification of the bacteria before we pick a empiric antibiotic here. Yeah, this question doesn't offer that possibility. Ah, uh, okay. I guess I'll vote for for B. Great. Good. So B is actually the the correct answer. Um, sorry, I'm having issues here with my. Uh, Advancing the slide, yes. So really what it is, is it, um, once, if someone has a acid fast, sputum acid fast smear that is positive, but a PCR for TB is negative, that is almost 100% of the time never TB. Because um, a PCR is a very highly sensitive test and if that, that is seen in um, conjunction with a, with a smear that is positive, 
that's uh, almost always NTM and the most common NTM is MAC. And that's the, this is first line therapy for MAC. So you, you made the right choice. So um, we know NTM are environmental and they're everywhere. So when do we actually treat? And it can be very challenging again to distinguish colonization from disease. Um, so there are uh, criteria um, for, uh, for considering an NTM infection actually uh, pathogenic or disease causing. And these guidelines are actually um, 13 years old and um, they've, I've been hearing that they're going to uh, update them uh, every year. I've been hearing that for the past five years, but I've yet, we have yet to see the, uh, the new guidelines. Hopefully they're being worked on at this time. So really what we're looking for in these patients are clinical uh, radiologic and microbiologic uh, criteria for, uh, for having NTM uh, disease. So having clinical symptoms, as well as having um, imaging that's consistent with, uh, with NTM uh, disease. So uh, like the CT that I showed you, the, the classic CT of uh, someone without pre-existing infection, pre-existing anatomic lung disease, or, um, or someone with pre-existing lung disease, they might have uh, significant bronchiectasis as well as microbiologic criteria. So because these are environmental, we, uh, we want more than one positive sputum culture. So at least uh, two or a positive uh, EAL culture because that's from deeper in the lower respiratory tract or um, having uh, a lung biopsy with pathologic features suggestive of infection like a granuloma, as well as AFB seen on biopsy or on uh, BAL culture. So um, this is a study showing that um, from a series in Japan that as the number of positive sputum cultures that were isolated for MAC, there was greater likelihood of actually having uh, true disease. Um, so you can see as the sputum cultures uh, were two or greater for MAC, um, the, the likelihood of having cavitary disease on imaging was 90% uh, or greater. And this sort of illustrates why we like to see more than one positive uh, sputum culture. The only exception to that would be Mycobacterium kansasii um, that's the infection that I mentioned earlier where there may be evidence of person-to-person -person transmission. That's really a, a NTM that behaves a lot like tuberculosis where there might be person-to-person -person transmission. And um, actually, we, uh, if there's only one positive culture, we tend to take that uh, more seriously as compared to other NTM like MAC. So if you were to do a simple gram stain on uh, looking for an AFB organism, you might not see it at all. And on the left, you see these little black uh, dots and you might see that and that's uh, beading. And on the right side, this is kind of hard to see. You might also see um, ghosts. So this, uh, this clear area um, that's not picking up the, the, uh, the gram stain. So this is what an AFB uh, smear would look like. Um, and often we try to increase the sensitivity by doing fluorescent uh, AFB smears. This is called the oramine rhodamine uh, stain. And of course, it's much easier to see something fluorescent orange on a black background than looking for something purple or pink on a, on a blue background. So this is a way to increase uh, sensitivity. And then for actually uh, growing the organism, these uh, mycobacteria are, are grown on both liquid and solid media. The liquid media, it's called the midget system, the mycobacterial growth indicator tube. The way that this works is that you have mycobacterial uh, broth, and then uh, it's in this system where um, there's this fluorescent compound that's quenched uh, by oxygen. But when the organisms grow, they begin to respirate and they utilize the oxygen. So the oxygen is no longer there to quench the, the fluorescent compound. And so there's fluorescence and then it flags. This is this, it's a signal that flags the system as being positive as there being growth. 
Um, and then there are solid media. Um, there's the Middlebrook media, which is auger-based, and then Lowenstein-Jensen, which is, uh, is egg-based. So the NTMs uh, can be divided microbiologically into the rapid growers and then the slow growers. The rapid growers grow uh, rapidly relative to the other uh, mycobacteria in that they grow up to seven days. They, they grow in seven days on culture, but that's uh, still relatively slow compared to other typical bacteria like Staph or E. coli, which, which might grow in as quickly as uh, 24 hours. So the three important rapid growers to remember, um, especially for, uh, for, for pulmonary fellows, I would say are the first three, Mycobacterium abscessus, uh, Chelonia, and Fortuitum. And we'll talk a little bit more about them uh, later. Um, the slow-growing NTMs, the way that we can distinguish them in lab is whether they form uh, pigmented colonies or not. Um, a lot of these names are more important for, uh, for ID fellows. So a scotochromogen forms pigmented collagen uh, colonies. Uh, photochromogen um, forms pigment, but only in the presence of light. And then non-chromogens do not form uh, pigmented colonies. Their colonies are unpigmented. So typically, these organisms take four to six weeks to grow on liquid media, or six to eight weeks on uh, solid medium. So the scotochromogens, these are two M. gordonian M. scrofulatium. Um, again, probably not so important from a, uh, for a pulmonary fellow uh, viewpoint. Um, but you can see little uh, golden colonies here. Um, those are uh, scotochromogens. Photochromogens, M. kansasii and M. marinum, those are both uh, clinically important. So this is an example of uh, photochromogen. So uh, when it's not in the presence of the light, there's no, uh, there is no pigmentation on the slant, but once the slant is uh, exposed to light, these, these uh, colonies, they uh, begin to form this golden yellow uh, pigment. And there are non-chromogens, the big non-chromogen to remember, are uh, members of the MAC complex. So let's talk about, uh, about MAC. So MAC is the Mycobacterium avium complex, and it includes several bacteria. M. avium and M. intracellularia are probably the ones that you're most familiar with, but there are also others. Um, very recently, we had an M. chimera outbreak in the heater cooler uh, units that are, that are used for bypass machines, especially in the OR, and there was a big M chimera outbreak throughout the country, and uh, it's just barely uh, settled down. So M chimera is also a member of the MAC, uh, the MAC group. So MAC is the most common cause of pulmonary NTM disease. Aside from isolated pulmonary NTM disease, um, it also causes hypersensitivity pneumonitis, as well as uh, disseminated disease. Looking at isolated pulmonary MAC uh, disease first, and again, the decision to treat is complex. You need to distinguish colonization from uh, true disease, and then seeing if the patient meets those uh, criteria, the clinical criteria, radiologic and microbiologic criteria that we mentioned earlier when we were, when we were talking about the guidelines. And even if they do have disease, um, something to consider is that uh, treatment will take at least 12 months, and uh, Treatment is associated with risks, of course. These antibiotics have uh, the possibility of adverse effects, and uh, does that justify treatment or, or does it not? Um, looking at the drugs that we use to treat MAC, ethambutol, azithromycin, uh, rifampin, and then sometimes aminoglycosides. So clinical response has been, to sh been shown to correlate only with in vitro susceptibility to macrolides and aminoglycosides. Uh, the rifampin and ethambutol MICs do not have any um, correlation with how well a patient does um, on their treatment regimen. 
we do know uh, for sure that when a macrolide is not included in treatment for, uh, for MAC, there's only up to a 30% uh, clinical response. So uh, including azithromycin or clarithromycin is key when, uh, when the organism is susceptible uh, to macrolides. So this is straight out of the, uh, the guidelines uh, for treatment of MAC. Um, we uh, treat patients three times a week if they uh, have nodular bronchiectatic disease, so sort of that group of uh, women with a pre without pre-existing anatomic lung disease. We tend to give them uh, thrice-weekly therapy. Um, we tend to do, we do daily therapy if someone has cavitary disease or if they've been previously treated before, and we also add uh, an aminoglycoside. You'll note that uh, the clarithromycin doses are double those of the azithromycin. Um, we like to use azithromycin over clarithromycin. Azithromycin and clarithromycin have not been uh, studied in a head-to-head -head trial for NTM disease, um, but azithromycin has less drug-drug interactions than clarithromycin. So clarithromycin uh, levels are decreased by rifamycin, so that's why the, the levels are double, the, the doses are doubled. So again, we tend to uh, prefer azithromycin over clarithromycin for pulmonary uh, MAC. We do need to monitor these patients for drug toxicities. So uh, ethambutol, remember, can cause um, optic neuropathy or, uh, red, or color blindness. Rifabutin, aside from causing the, the side effects that rifampin also causes, things like uh, cholestatic hepatitis or a flu-like syndrome, or uh, cytopenias, rifibutin also has been associated with anterior, anterior uveitis. So these patients need to have their, uh, their vision monitored. We also need to monitor their hepatic enzymes because they're on uh, macrolides and rifamycins. So auditory and vestibular function. So patients who are on aminoglycosides or macrolides should, uh, should have regular audiograms. Renal function, especially if they're uh, on aminoglycosides. And then um, rifamycins, so things like rifampin and rifibutin, they can... Uh, cause granulocytopenia or pancytopenia, so they should have regular uh, CBCs checked. So patients who have pulmonary MAC, if they're on an appropriate uh, regimen to which they're sensitive, they should improve within the first three to six months, and generally their culture should convert by, uh, by 12 months on a macrolide-containing regimen, if they're susceptible uh, to a macrolide. Um, we consider these individuals to be cured if they're culture negative for 12 months. And the treatment duration is uh, for 12 months after they've uh, converted their cultures to negative. If cultures revert to positive after that time, after they've been culture negative for 12 months, then most likely um, that reversion is due to a reinfection as opposed to a, to a relapse. So again, we treat them for 12 months after they've converted their cultures to negative. Um, if they don't respond, it could be uh, because of several reasons. They could have developed macrolide resistance um, they could have uh, significant cavitary disease or another focus of infection that's not well penetrated by, uh, by drugs, or there could be drug-drug uh, interactions. They could have uh, subtherapeutic drug levels. Uh, sometimes the drugs themselves cause nausea and vomiting, and so the patients could have uh, malabsorption because of that. So those are all reasons why one might not be uh, converting their cultures within an appropriate time. If someone does have uh, localized uh, lung disease, they are candidates for surgery, especially if they're not responding to, uh, to treatment. And then of course you want to treat their bronchiectasis. So things like uh, bronchodilators, uh, chest physiotherapy, addressing the reflux and then uh, smoking cessation. 
So there's a new drug that's come out. It's called Aracase. It's a liposomal uh, amicacin. And uh, this has less systemic toxicity than parenteral amicacin because it's being administered in an inhaled form. And the, um, the idea is that you're delivering a high concentration of the drug to the alveolar macrophages. And, um, the fact, and making it in a liposomal fashion allows for it to, uh, to deliver the, these increased uh, drug concentrations. And this was a study that came out a few years ago, and it showed that individuals with MAC or M abscessus, they had significant improvements in culture conversion. And in their six-minute walk tests, when they were um, administered liposomal amicacin, and they pretty much had minimal uh, toxicity that you would see with uh, systemic amicacin. They did not have much, they did not have any nephrotoxicity and very minimal um, ototoxicity. Other drugs that have been used for patients uh, with MAC who are failing first-line therapy um, clofazamine has very good sterilizing activity against all uh, mycobacteria, and it's used for MDR-TB. It also has activity against uh, MAC and M-obsessives. And then linazolid, we also use linazolid, but we never use linazolid at the 600 milligram twice daily dose for these patients because they're on uh, treatment for such a long time. They end up being on the 600 once a day dose, and they tolerate it very well. Um, and uh, that does have activity against, um, against MAC and M-obsessives. And then there's a new drug to treat MDR-TB. It's called bedaquiline. That also has activity against uh, MAC and m obsessus. So that was pulmonary MAC. Looking at uh, disseminated MAC, remember for disseminated NTM, the risk factor isn't uh, necessarily anatomic lung disease. The risk factor is um, having a defect in that interferon gamma uh, interleukin-12 loop that we talked about earlier. So, uh, so AIDS patients, um, they're at risk for disseminated MAC. Um, they, uh, the MAC is acquired via inhalation or ingestion, and the pathophysiology is these organisms penetrate the bowel wall into the lamina propria, and then they develop mesenteric adenopathy, and then there's hematogenous dissemination, and then this is really a uh, reticuloendothelial uh, infection. You can find MAC in the bone marrow and in the liver and in the, uh, in the spleen. So disseminated MAC has been shown to occur in 15 to 40% of AIDS patients if they're not um, currently on ARVs. So the signs and symptoms, they tend to have fevers, night sweats, cachexia, they have anemia, um, partly because of the bone marrow involvement, partly because of anemia of uh, chronic disease. So interestingly, um, they'll have an elevated ALK-FOS, uh, but normal AST and ALT. Um, and you would think, well, perhaps this is because of the bone marrow involvement, but it's been shown that when you fractionate the ALKFOS, that it ends up being uh, of hepatic origin. And then disseminated MAC often presents as an iris immune reconstitution in patients who are started on ARVs. Um, it might present as a painful lymphadenopathy, and then uh, you do an FNA, and then you uh, end up finding uh, MAC there. So disseminated MAC is uh, definitively diagnosed with uh, blood or bone marrow cultures. Um, we should check susceptibility to macrolides. Remember, macrolides are the most important drugs to treat, uh, to treat MAC. The treatment is usually a macrolide with a thambutol. Um, so unlike um, those with pulmonary MAC, we generally don't use rifamycins much for, uh, for patients with HIV who have disseminated MAC, mostly because of the drug-drug interactions, and then the rifamycins themselves are not adding much uh, clinical benefit, and it's being outweighed by these drug-drug interactions. And also, unlike pulmonary MAC, where we tend to prefer azithromycin over clarithromycin, clarithromycin has been shown to clear bacteremia due to MAC faster than azithromycin, so we would use clarithromycin for disseminated MAC. 
And um, let's say someone is presenting with uh, disseminated MAC and they're diagnosed with HIV, when would you start uh, them on their ARVs? So you should start them on their ARVs um, about two weeks after beginning MAC treatment. I didn't uh, write anything on this slide about MAC prophylaxis, and this is because um, in the last couple of years, uh, we've stopped using uh, MAC prophylaxis in someone who has uh, HIV with a CD4 count less than 50 if they're on uh, a uh, regimen uh, that's suppressing their viral load. Many studies have now shown that, AIDS, uh, that patients with suppressed viral loads, even if their CD4 counts are very low, they're at an extremely low risk of developing MAC. So we don't uh, routinely give azithromycin if someone's CD4 count is less than 50. But we do do it if someone is, um, is not going to be on ART for, uh, for, uh, for an extensive period of time, or if they're on a regimen and they're failing it, then we do place those patients with low CD4 counts on uh, macrolide prophylaxis. So for disseminated MAC, the symptoms tend to resolve uh, relatively quickly within two to four weeks. The bacteremia clears within uh, four to eight weeks. Um, generally, again, if, uh, if they're not clearing their bacteremia, we'll look at issues of drug susceptibility, drug absorption, and, and adherence, similar to, uh, to pulmonary MAC. And we treat them for uh, 12 months or until their CD4 count is greater than 100 for, uh, for six months, whichever of those ends up being uh, longer. So this is the third syndrome that uh, MAC causes. Aside from isolated pulmonary disease and disseminated disease, it can cause hypersensitivity pneumonitis or hot tub lung. Um, this has been shown to occur where you have identical strains isolated from patients and from the aerosol producing water sources, uh, which they have, such as their uh, hot tub. And this has also been isolated from, uh, from saunas. It's not clear if this is a true infection or a hypersensitivity reaction. This really has features of both. So they present with a uh, sort of a subacute uh, respiratory illness and uh, often patients don't recognize or don't uh, think of the link between the hot tub and their symptoms because in the short term, sometimes their symptoms do improve when they use the hot tub. Um, what suggests that this is a, uh, an infection are the fact that the you can culture MAC in many of these patients. And then uh, on pathology, there are granulomas often seen um, in, in the lungs. Um, so the treatment is actually not well established for, for MAC hypersensitivity pneumonitis. It's clear that um, they should stop using the hot tub or the sauna. Um, but whether to use steroids or antimicrobials or both, that, that is not clear. There, are, there, are, there have been uh, case reports of using any of those uh, treatment modalities and patients have improved, whether it's with steroids alone, anti-MAC therapy alone, or giving both. What is clear, though, is that if anti-MAC therapy, um, rifampin, ethambutol, uh, clarithromycin, or azithromycin, if those are used, that they only need them for shorter periods, three to six months. This does not need to be treated for as long as isolated pulmonary uh, NTM infection. So the second most common cause of uh, pulmonary NTM is M. kansasii. Um, this is common in the UK. It's probably the most common uh, NTM infection in the UK, and it's also common in uh, the southern and central part of the US. This is common in patients with underlying alcoholism, COPD, uh, pneumoconiosis and malignancy, and it is also uh, a cause of severe NTM disease in pe people living with HIV. Um, you can really think of M. kansasii as uh, 
as, a, as an NTM that is very similar uh, to tuberculosis. And again, it behaves that way. Remember, MCANS SEI is the, uh, the one organism for which there may be evidence of person-to-person -person transmission, and it's the one organism where isolating just one, uh, one positive culture uh, will make one, well, should make you think seriously whether to treat it or not, even though it's only one uh, positive isolate. And again, it presents similar to pulmonary reactivation uh, of MTB. Unlike MAC, where for MAC, we worry about the uh, susceptibility to macrolides and immunoglycosides. For MCANS ACI, um, the only uh, drug for which in vitro susceptibility correlates with uh, clinical outcomes is, uh, is rifampin. Generally, this is a very easy uh, organism, uh, a very easy infection to treat. Um, patients do very well. Um, look at these uh, conversion rates, 100% sputum conversion rate at four months with rifampin and even 90% um, without rifampin. So the treatment is similar to uh, TB, but without uh, pyrazinamide, INH, rifampin, and ethambutol. Pyrazinamide is uh, only effective against uh, TB, and it's only effective against MTB sensu stricto. It's not effective against bovine TB. M. bovis is also not susceptible to pyrazinamide. So that's a little uh, thing to remember that pyrazinamide is only used for MTB sensu stricto, and MCANS SEI, you treat like TB, but without the, uh, the pyrazinamide. Um, there's no role for surgery in MCANS SEI infection, and it's because these patients do uh, very well uh, with medical treatment. Unlike MCANS SEI, M. abscessus is extremely difficult to treat. Um, this is probably worse than treating multidrug resistant uh, TB. Many patients with M. abscessus, they have uh, mixed infections with, uh, with MAC, especially in patients with cystic fibrosis. This, uh, this organism is resistant to all first-line TB medications. Um, because it's so difficult to treat, you should perform drug susceptibility on all, the, on all isolates. Um, the one drug that's been shown to be correlated with clinical outcomes is uh, clarithromycin. So in this uh, South Korean cohort uh, with M. abscessus, if they were uh, sensitive to clarithromycin, they had 64% treatment success and 17% uh, treatment success um, if they were resistant to clarithromycin. Um, and the reason is, um, so M. abscessus is actually divided into subspecies. There's a subspecies abscessus, boletii, and uh, masiliense. And this is, uh, this is very detailed, but it's actually uh, clinically important. And these uh, are identified by gene sequencing in labs like LabCorp or uh, commercial labs like Quest or LabCorp, they, they do not uh, subspeciate M. abscessus. This would have to be done at a place like a National Jewish or the Mayo Clinic. So uh, macrolides, they target ribosomal RNA and they inhibit protein synthesis and uh, bacteria develop resistance to macrolides by methylating um, the 23, 23S subunit of ribosomal RNA and they prevent drug attachment. So the reason these different subspecies of M. abscessus are relevant is, is that uh, one of these subspecies, M. mesiliense, is a deletion mutant, and so it's inherently susceptible uh, to macrolides. The other two, abscessus and bolidii, they have inducible resistance. And so probably what happened in that South Korean cohort is that the, uh, the ones, the, the strains that um, were susceptible to the uh, to the macrolide were probably the deletion mutants, M. mesiliense. So whenever we have M. abscessus, we always want to try to get uh, subspeciation in order to determine if, uh, if they do have this ERM41 uh, gene or not. So again, treatment of M. abscessus is extremely difficult because of drug toxicities. 
um, the variable susceptibilities and the length of treatment. Um, nothing has been shown to result in microbiologic cure. And by microbiologic cure, we mean 12 months of negative sputum cultures. And often because it's so difficult to treat, to treat, the only realistic goals are symptomatic and radiologic improvement, trying to decrease the smear burden, um, trying to improve uh, the imaging and trying to improve uh, symptoms, of course. So uh, often this is treated similar to TB with an intensive phase and then a maintenance phase. And then the intensive phase, the length of it is really um, delineated by however long um, a patient can tolerate the drugs because they're so toxic. So an intensive phase would consist of something like an IV aminoglycoside like amikacin plus IV cefloxetin or imipenem, which both have activity against, against emobsessus and also a, an oral macrolide. And we would give that initially and then a maintenance phase. And that would be something like a macrolide plus an inhaled aminoglycoside. So liposomal amikacin we talked about earlier also has activity against emobsessus. Maybe it's an inter intermittent IV regimen for this maintenance phase and maybe it's a macrolide plus other oral drugs. So I mentioned clofazamine earlier. So clofazamine and, uh, and macrolides, when they're used together, they're both synergistic and they decrease the MIC. So that's a reasonable regimen. Doxycycline or uh, thoroquinolones, moxilinazolid, they all have activity against them obsessives. Sometimes that could be something to use in a maintenance phase. But again, this is a very, very difficult infection uh, to eradicate completely. So let's talk a little bit about lung resection for NTM disease. So. Uh, this is uh, used for patients with localized lung damage um, and as well for patients who do have localized lung disease, but, um, but they're failing medical therapy or they're not, their smears are not um, converting to negative and their cultures are not converting to negative uh, on medical therapy. And this can be highly effective. Uh, some studies have shown uh, sputum culture conversion rates as high as 100%. So this is a case series at uh, National Jewish. They have a lot of experience with lung resection for, uh, for TB initially, but now more so for, uh, for NTM. Um, the most common organisms for which they performed this uh, surgery was, uh, were MAC or emobsessus. There were only 57% uh, were culture negative at the time of surgery, uh, but uh, the majority ended up converting their cultures after surgery. The most common indication was uh, focal bronchiectasis, and most commonly they did lobectomy, but they did do pneumectomy in some cases. And then the mortality rate was, uh, was relatively low later. Um, the most common complication was a bronchopleural fistula. This was more likely if someone was smear positive at the time of surgery, or if a right pneumonectomy uh, was performed. And then you can see here over time, uh, the mortality rates uh, significantly decrease as they became more experienced in, in performing the procedure. Um, looking at NTM and transplant patients, so uh, transplant recipients who are at risk for NTM because of the structural abnormalities, bronchiectasis, the fibrosis, the immunosuppressive medication itself, and then uh, disruption of mucocutaneous barriers, um, so they might have ports and other uh, long-term uh, central lines or the other, or surgical wounds, the thoracotomy site itself. Those all place them at risk for, uh, for NTM infection. Um, so I'm going to concentrate here on emobsessus again because it's the most difficult to treat and then cystic fibrosis uh, patients often have emobsessus infections before transplantation. So it's been shown that uh, emobsessus itself is not a absolute contraindication to lung transplant even though it's very difficult to treat. But um, patients tend to have better outcomes um, after transplant if, uh, if they're smear negative prior to transplantation. 
And again, uh, these patients should be treated for MFCs in the immediate preoperative, perioperative, and postoperative um, periods. So similar to uh, to, um, to res uh, lung resection surgery, um, the best outcome is when uh, someone is uh, smear negative uh, prior to transplantation or prior to, uh, to lung resection. Okay, the last few slides, I'm uh, just going to go over a few more uh, species and just give a little bit of uh, um, clinical relevance to them. So m 4 it commonly causes uh, pulmonary disease and it's really associated in patients who have uh, GERD. There's been a strong association with, uh, with GERD for m 4 pulmonary infection. It presents similarly as m abscessus, um, but it's also been associated with uh, furunculosis in, in nail salons. There was a uh, New England Journal article that came out um, almost 20 years ago of women who uh, were all going to the same uh, whirlpool bath for, uh, for, for manicures and pedicures. And then they ended up developing these uh, nodular skin lesions and they isolated M. fortuitum from the skin lesions as well as from the, uh, the whirlpool baths. Then uh, what's believed to have happened is that um, they were shaving their legs before they were going uh, to have the, the pedicures and so they had these micro abrasions in their skin and then they were at risk for developing these M. fortuitum uh, nodular skin infections. Um, M. chelone is another rapid grower. Um, I forgot to say M. fortuitum, the organism we just spoke about is also a rapid grower. So M. chelone is a rapid grower. It doesn't really cause pulmonary disease. It usually causes skin and soft tissue disease. It's been associated with um, with uh, LASIK surgery, and it's, it has caused uh, outbreaks of keratitis in, uh, in operative suites um, that have uh, been found to have M. chelone isolates in them. So uh, this is from an ophthalmology article. These patients developed uh, keratitis that was associated with M. chelone, and then they ended up uh, requiring corneal uh, transplants. Mycobacterium um, marinum, it's found in fresh and salt water uh, in aquariums and in poorly chlorinated swimming pools. Um, the infection has been known as fish tank granuloma, swimming pool granuloma, and the organism is introduced through, uh, through skin abrasion. So the classic story, you have someone in, um, fishing in Chesapeake Bay, they nick their skin with a, with a fish hook, and then they end up with an M. marinum uh, skin and soft tissue infection. So classically, it prevents, presents as this uh, nodular uh, skin disease, and then it's, it, it um, tends to ascend up uh, the lymphatic sin, uh, system. We call it a nodular lymphagic, lymphagictasia pattern of spread. Uh, M. marinum is one of the bacteria that causes this pattern of spread. Other bacteria that cause nodular lymphagictasia are things like Nocardia brasiliensis and uh, sporothrix, and uh, they have this sporotrichoid uh, appearance. This is generally pretty susceptible to antibiotics. Um, we would treat most times with uh, clarithromycin and ethambutol in combination for a few months. If there's evidence of osteomyelitis or if these patients uh, need surgery, we tend to add uh, rifampin as well because of its, uh, its excellent activity against biofilms. The last mycobacterial uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection I'll talk about is M. ulcerans. It's also been called a Beruli ulcer. This is not common in the U.S. This is common in, um, in tropical regions around uh, rivers. This is the third most common uh, mycobacterial infection worldwide after TB and leprosy. 
The organism has been recovered from insects, mollusks, fish, and, uh, and possums. The mode of transmission is not clear. It's not clear whether this is due to an insect bite or whether it's due to abrasions in the skin. This is a really um, aggressive infection. It presents initially as a painless papule and then it uh, eventually develops into an ulcer and it, uh, it is really necrotizing and it, um, and it advances and is very, uh, very aggressive as you can see. Um, the differential, what we would think of, um, especially based on where M ulcerans is endemic, we would also think about uh, cutaneous leishmania. That would be uh, in the differential for these patients. Um, the diagnosis is often clinical because uh, in the settings where this is common, uh, there's often no access to, to lab diagnostic facilities. Um, the treatment is with uh, debridement and skin grafting. Um, there's some evidence that uh, treating with uh, combination uh, clarithromycin and ethambutol um, that decreases the risk for, uh, for relapse and uh, decreases the risk for metastatic uh, infection. So uh, in conclusion, um, NTM are incre increasingly recognized. We talked about earlier how um, there seems to be an increasing uh, incidence uh, of infection based on those uh, skin test uh, studies that we talked about. Um, remember to differentiate disseminated from isolated pulmonary disease. Those at risk for disseminated infection are the ones with this uh, defect in the interferon gamma IL-12, IL-18 loop. Um, and then with regards to isolated pulmonary disease, differentiating those with underlying anatomic lung disease from those without uh, underlying anatomic lung disease. We talked about um, the women with the, the so-called um, Lady Windermere syndrome and how they're at risk for uh, um, pulmonary NTM infection. Um, and then we've also talked about how direct inoculation may cause skin and soft tissue uh, infection. And, uh, and another big uh, theme that we talked about was how these organisms, uh, they generally require treatment for a prolonged treatment of time, uh, prolonged period of time um, there's a risk for, uh, for drug toxicities, and then oftentimes, especially with M. abscessus, um, um, it's very difficult to cure these infections, and that the most realistic outcome is symptomatic and radiologic uh, improvement. So I've actually done a very terrible job of uh, looking at the chat box while I was talking. Um, so I'm going to open this up. If anyone has any comments or anything uh, to say, please feel free to speak up. Dr. Sleep. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering if for some of these more difficult or um, resistant types of NTM infections like uh, M. abscessus, if there has been any work exploring, if there's sort of any adjunctive like immunologic ex uh, approaches such as the interferon uh, gamma loop that you were mentioning to try to uh, improve the body's immune response and improve cure rate at this point. They've done that um, for patients with disseminated infections um, because they're the ones who tend to have those defects. Um, but using it um, routinely for pulmonary disease, I'm not aware of any, um, any um, reports on using um, immune therapy for that. Uh, for that. I've not um, heard either about using phage therapy yet either for MFSSs, although I suppose that could be something done in the future because that's being um, studied for uh, resistant typical bacteria like the resistant gram negatives. Uh, this is Jim Britt from Pulmonary. I have a couple of comments slash questions. Uh, 
in answer to the last question, many years ago, we had one case of a woman from Southern Maryland who would not clear her atypical mycobacteria and Ken Olivier at NIH worked with one of the fellows and me indirectly to treat her with aerosolized interferon gamma. And she cleared after one year and she felt so much better that we had to pull teeth to get her back here for a follow-up bronchoscopy to show that, to prove that it was actually gone. But it was- Oh, that's great. It was fascinating, but I've never heard of it since. Uh, I have a couple other questions. Uh, one of the challenges in treating these patients is the number of pills that they have to take. It's very difficult. So how about um, dividing the recipe? I see you get your reaction to this dividing the recipe into the worst medication on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the others on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and Sunday is a drug holiday, making sure that the total milligrams every week meet the recipe. <laughs> uh, we try to do things like that in the TB world. Um, a lot of the difficulty in doing that are, is that some of the drugs are concentration dependent, some are time dependent. Um, there might be a, a pharmacist on this call with us um, so it might not necessarily work, although theoretically it could. Um, that, that's my initial reaction. <laughs> I, I think I've done that once or twice. I can't, as an anecdote, it was just, just in order to get all the pills in, so to speak. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're bringing up a very good point. A lot of these uh, drugs are extremely toxic, especially for, uh, for M-obsessives. And I read somewhere, I thought I had read somewhere where clarithromycin, uh, which is harder to take and taste perversion and all that stuff, uh, also cleared the sputum faster than azithromycin, although I, I agree that azithromycin is easier to take. Yeah, I'm, I'm not aware of that. I, I maybe I need to go back and look, but um, yeah, generally we prefer azithromycin for pulmonary. Um, and then clarithromycin, definitely it's been shown to, to clear the bacteremia faster, but I'll, I'll have to look about the pulmonary issue. And then another, another old-fashioned pearl is I believe M. Kansasii is more common west of Frederick because of the soil. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think it's hardly ever seen east of Frederick, actually. Yeah, we had one patient here with, uh, with HIV that had... M. Kansasii, for some reason, someone got a stool culture and it was M. Kansasii, and we didn't even know what to do with it. Um, they didn't have any lymphadenopathy or anything on their imaging and nothing to suggest a GI infection, and we were all uh, scratching our heads. And then we did have one case of hot tub pneumonia here one time, and the source was the patient's well water. And the way we proved it was, um, you know, we cultured the patient, obviously. Then we, the wife was a nurse. She brought in a sample of the hot tub water and we cultured that and it was positive. So then she brought in a uh, sample of their well water before the filter and it was also positive. Uh, and they didn't live near a farm or an agricultural area. It was very mysterious. But the way we got it done, honestly, is uh, we couldn't get it done in the commercial lab because all they care about in well water samples is coliforms. So we actually had to submit the well water to our lab as the patient's urine. And they took it and processed it and it came back positive. Interesting. <laughs> so how did you end up treating that? Uh, it's a long, it was a long time ago. So I think we used one of the standard recipes at the time for 
uh, few months and he felt immediately better and he was actually lost to follow up before we could compete, complete the treatment. And he didn't like coming downtown. Uh, oh. And his wife and son said that he liked the hot tub a lot, like every night, but neither, but neither the wife nor the son had any sign of disease. And they, they used the hot tub too, but not very frequently. Oh, wow. So I don't know. Oh, thank you for sharing those That's all uh, stories. <laughs> Does anyone uh, have any other comments or questions? Well, um, thank you very much for inviting an ID physician to, uh, to speak at your uh, lecture series. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe and healthy and uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you.